If you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up Acts 17. We're going to continue journeying with Paul in his second missionary journey. You remember a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we we all made a decision that we have decided to follow Jesus. And, and last week we talked about wanting to be Bereans, people who hunger and thirst after the Word of God to make the Word of God a part of our life. It's my hope that today uh, we would be moved to action, just as Paul was moved to action, as he sees the loss around him. You, you can't walk very far on a day without seeing them, can you? You know, those people walking down the street or in the store or standing on the corner without any hope or those for whom no one cares the Lord cares and we, you and I are his chosen vessel to take the word if we don't do it I don't know if anybody else is gonna he calls us to action. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, Dedicated to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made this world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, For we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaved, uh, shaped, by art and man's devising. For truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, 
He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We'll hear you again on this matter. And Paul departed from among them. However, some joined with him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. But after these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth in your word. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that we would just see the, the need, Father God, in the pages of Scripture, the call to action, that our hearts would break for the apathy that sends Paul going to another city, Lord God. And Father, that you would just give us the ability to understand the grasp, Lord Jesus, what it is you're calling us to. As we look at this section, at this, we look at this, this outreach by Paul, Lord, that you would stir our hearts. Lord God, that we would receive that which you have for us in the seed of your word as we give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at Acts chapter, 16, or chapter 17, verse 16, here's what we see. Paul. Is in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy, waiting for them to come. And as they're on their way, the Bible tells us that he is provoked. He is moved to action by the need around him. The scripture tells us in verse 16 that as he looked at the idols around him, uh, as Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And when he saw the city was given over to idols. He sees the need. He sees the need around him and it provokes him to move. He's just there to wait. He hadn't planned on this missionary stop. He hadn't planned on doing outreach. He hadn't planned on a message. But he looked around him and he saw a need and he recognized he was the man for the job. Man, it, it's something that I desire so much in my life and for your lives as well, that the need around you provokes you to action. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of people that need the truth. They need to know about Jesus. I was at uh, graduation this last year, and I don't know, for whatever reason, we left graduation after graduation was over. I ended up going by the skate park. And when I went by the skate park, I looked over at the kids at the skate park, and I thought, man, I think we could do something for these guys. So every Tuesday night we go out, we bring food, bring some water. Most important, we bring the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is to the kids who are at the skate park on Tuesday night. Saw a need, was provoked to action. That's how it's supposed to work. The problem is the needs don't ever stop. They don't ever stop. I turn around and, and I've got, you know, people in one stage or another of homelessness. They come by the church and, and there's a need. There's a need for them. There's a need for guys who are struggling in addiction. And so the Lord leads us to prayerfully consider Emmaus House, which is a, a discipleship house that the church is at some point going to buy to function as a halfway house in town for those in need. See a need? Be provoked to action. 
the point is, that's how every believer is supposed to function. That's how we're supposed to move. That's the same Spirit working in all of us, calling us. We, we see and hear and understand that there are folks over in the convalescent home that still would like to hear about the love of Jesus and sing some songs and have somebody care about them. And so we see a need and we're provoked to action. Today, there will be three more services after church in each one. As God is moving and directing and calling you and me and everyone else out there. Some of us find ourselves in a season perhaps where you cannot be as involved as you'd like. That's okay. Life is full of seasons. Sometimes it's time for our moms to take care of us. Sometimes it's time for us to take care of our moms. Sometimes you can't do all the things you'd like to do. You'd like to do more and you have other responsibilities. I get that. What I don't get is apathy. Apathy that sees the need but won't move. Won't touch, won't reach out. Won't be God's champion for the moment. He's got lots of champions. There are several times God's going to going to give opportunity to every one of us, but you And I, we have opportunity, sometimes several times in a day, to say, no, I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to be the guy who's going to love that person that that everybody else wishes would just go away. I'm going to be the guy who's going to reach out in this situation and help because God's laid it on my heart. Paul was provoked to action. He could not sit still. I think if we can just sit still and if we're okay, I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem. Wow. You know, uh, Revelation chapter 3, chapters 2 and 3 are all about seven letters to seven churches, right? Everybody wants to be Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the the church of the open door, the one Jesus didn't have anything bad to say about. He only said good things. Because she, the church of Philadelphia, is reaching out, being provoked to action. The last church, I never heard anybody preach and say, this is who we are. The last church is the church of the Laodiceans. They had an epistle written to them. Did you know that? Yeah. It's in your Bible. It's called the book of Colossians. The church of Laodicea was apathetic. They weren't stirred to action. Well, nobody wants to be them because Jesus said, you're lukewarm, right? And if you're lukewarm, what's he say he's going to do? Spew you out of his mouth. Now, you know, I don't know exactly what's involved in that. I just know it's not good. But I remember sitting in a church service one time when I was a kid. I was probably a young teenager. And the preacher was talking and he was talking about whether we're hot or cold or lukewarm. And while he was saying that, I didn't know nothing about what it meant to be lukewarm. When he said it, when he went through hot, cold, lukewarm, I said, I'm lukewarm. I'm not super hot. I'm not really cold. 
I'm lukewarm. Now, most of the people in the church now know lukewarm's bad. So we seldom give ourselves an honest thought about whether we are hot or cold. Cold, by the way, is not always bad. Cold's refreshing. You ever been on a hot day and wanted something cold to drink? So sometimes we think cold just means, you know, lost or found numb. Cold could be refreshing, so can hot. But lukewarm, lukewarm's just not good for much, is it? Paul saw the need around him and was provoked to action. Gotta move. I gotta go. I, I, gotta, I gotta tell somebody. So what was the thing he normally did? He always did the same thing every time. You remember? He'd go to the synagogue, right? He'd go to the synagogue because there were Jews who knew the scripture, who were looking for a Messiah, and he was coming to tell them who he was. So he went there. He went to the synagogue, and he, and he spoke in the synagogue. Scripture tells us he also spoke to the believing Gentiles, the Greeks who were there who, who kind of followed suit. We talked about them all along, right? The God-fearers. You have, that was probably the, the group from which he drew the most. That was a group from which he, he would have the most people saved. But when we come to the end of this chapter and they name names, they name two Greek names, and that's it. So I don't know if the synagogue responded. The scripture also tells us he went to the marketplace, right? The marketplace. In the, in the, in the marketplace, it's called the Agora in, in Greek culture. And in the Agora, that everybody went there. It's not that much different from, from us today when we got to go to town. That's what it means to go to the marketplace. Like, we got to go to town. And, and you make as many stops as you can, right? You're going to hit as many, because God knows you don't have to go all the way to Twin if you only got to get one thing, right? You got to wait until you need at least two things. The good news is that I always need several different kinds of ammo, and they are all at the same store. So I don't know. I digress. But, so that's what the Agora was, the marketplace. So Paul went to the marketplace. And he talked. He dialogued with whoever would listen to him. He just talked to him. I love that about Kathy. Kathy can talk to anybody. My oldest son is just like that. He, uh, he won't stand in line anywhere without talking to somebody. Talk about the day. Talk about whatever. Speak about whatever's going on. You know, it's just a small twist in your normal dialoguing to begin to incorporate mentioning Jesus Christ and opportunities just start popping up right or left for you to to be able to share it's not natural for me I gotta I gotta work at that because I just soon stand in line put blinders on and pretend I'm invisible please let nobody see me that's it's just my nature if you see me in the store and I didn't say hi it's not because I'm mad at you I put my blinders up and I'm just trying to be invisible. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. But I, I don't know that God ever wants... God wants us to see the need around us even there and be provoked to action. Right? To share the love of Jesus Christ with whomever God might bring alongside. He's provoked to action. He goes where he can go. He goes to whoever will listen to him. He, he finds three groups, right? He finds the Jews... The God-fearers, or, or, or Gentile or Greek people who, who kind of followed along the lines of the Old Testament. 
And then he found whoever was in the marketplace. And the Bible tells us that whoever was in the marketplace was made up of two groups of philosophers, right? You guys know what philosophy is, right? Phileo is to love, and Sophia is knowledge. A philosopher is someone who loves knowledge. That's what it, that's what it means, what the words mean. So these two groups of philosophers, you had Epicureans and Stoics. Now, while we may not go by those names today, those same mindsets are prevalent, not only in our world, but sometimes within the church. Parts of them. Well, let's take a look at what they were. The, the scripture tells us, as we, as we look at it, it says that Paul at the Areopagus, it says Paul stood in verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive... You are very religious. Here you got a group of guys, Epicureans and Stoics, full of religion, full of concept, but without any truth. So who were the Epicureans? Epicureans believed everything happens by chance. Just a random explosion occurred and life came. That's a new thought, right? Oh, this happened a long time ago. The fella who first spoke about evolution... He comes after this. There's a random occurrence. Poof. Well, they, they didn't necessarily believe in just a bang and life existed. They still thought that there were gods, powers out there in the universe that couldn't be explained. But they didn't really have anything to do with our lives. They just somehow began life were an accident. And the best you can hope for is a simple life full of pleasure. That's the Epicureans. A simple life full of pleasures from which we get the concept of hedonism, which is to live for pleasure, which is a very common thing in the United States because we have pleasure all around us. Most of us don't have to struggle wondering what we're going to eat or whether we'll get water or if the vessel that we got to carry down to the well that's several miles away and pump water into it is going to hold the water or if it's all going to leak out of the hole before we get back. Well, that's the majority of the rest of the world. So, but they, the, the concept, the Epicurean concept, pleasure, seeking pleasure. Gods might exist, but they really don't have anything to do with us. And then you live, and then you die. That's it. That was the Epicurean. He tended to have a little better, brighter view, at least. You know, there's no God to save me, i got to save myself concept, Epicurean. The Stoic, on the other hand, the Stoics, they were pantheists. They believed in all the gods. In fact, they considered the Epicureans to be atheists. Practical atheists. They thought there were gods out there, but they, they didn't worship anything. But the, the Stoics, they believed everything was God. God was in everything. God was all around them. Everything needed to be worshipped. And whatever happened to them, they were just... Um, Pawns in the hands of the gods. Whatever happened to them was destiny. They just had to accept it. Basically, the Stoic believed that, you know, life sucks and then you die. That's a Stoic. They were a bit of a drag to hang around. But that was the kind of the Stoic's mindset. That was their essence. And the scripture tells us, as we, as we look, as we... Uh, in verse 18, before we get down there, it says, then, then these guys, the Epicureans and the Stoics, 
they came and said, what's this babbler want to say? What's this guy talking about? Babbler is the word, means seed picker. It's a, it's a word for a bird that flies down and just snatches up seeds all over the place. And they would use it about a guy who didn't have his own ideas. He was pulling other people's ideas. So to be called a babbler was basically to be called a, a, a moron who really shouldn't be among us. But let's see if he can entertain us with his thoughts. So that's what brings Paul Right? That's the call for Paul. He's moved to action. He's moved to go. But what brings him? What brings him is the people, the Epicureans, the Stoics. They call. They say they want to hear him. The scripture tells us, right? The scripture lays out for us that, that uh, in verse 21, for all Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time with nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. So they want to hear him. So they bring him to the Areopagus. Areopagus means the Mount of Ares. Mount of Aries, or maybe you know it by another name, Mars Hill. That's Mars Hill. There's a famous guy brought to the Areopagus. And he had to, he had to kind of give a, an account of what his philosophy was. His name was Socrates. They didn't really like Socrates' philosophy, so they gave him poison. And killed him on the Areopagus. Now Paul's standing in the same place. Similar people, although Socrates was years before. Similar people standing around. But here, here is Paul. Here he's ready to give. He's ready to give account. He's ready to, to share what the Lord has given him. What God has told him. He's got people who think he's an idiot. Who steals ideas from everywhere else. Who really only have him there to be entertained by what kind of craziness he might come up with he's got the people walking around the marketplace desperately in need of salvation and so as he stands there given the opportunity to share he says i perceive that you are all very religious religion is man seeking man seeking god binding up people and trying to force them into something that through which will will bring some kind of salvation what we're looking for is the realization that god sought us and we're just responding to god calling us where were you guys when jesus died you weren't even born yet were you so who made the first move well god did didn't he as far as we're all concerned if any of you were in existence prior to Christ, then I guess you could make some kind of case. But I think we're safe to say we all came after. God made the first move. What's the scripture tell us? Our response to God is to love him because he first loved us, right? He first loved us. He loved us first. We respond. So he's standing, he's looking, he's seeing, he says, you guys are all religious. The word, the, the base root word for that word religious is superstitious. And it kind of makes sense when you look at the next thing he says, because he said, I was looking around at all the things you worship. Do you know in in Athens, there were 30,000 idols and 10,000 people. Three gods to every one person in the city. It was said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person. So Paul says, I was looking around at all these things you worship, and I came across this one altar. This one altar, Agnostotheo, 
dedicated to the unknowable God. See, the Athenians were pretty sure that while they were very smart, there was at least room for something they didn't know. So they even had an altar to that God. The unknowable God, the God that we don't know, the God that we can't know. So that's where Paul begins. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you about the God you don't know. It says in verse 23, as I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowledge, I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to proclaim him to you. So what does Paul do? He's going to give us a perfect way to reach out to someone and share the truth of the gospel. He's going to start where they're at. So he starts with this concept. He finds a bridge in the altar of the unknown God. He finds an opening in which to, to bring his message. And the content of his message began with their pursuit. You're religious. You even have an altar to the unknown God. But your pursuit needs to bring you to the truth. The concept is this. Truth always, truth about God always helps us understand ourselves. You don't understand your need. You don't understand the issues in your heart. You don't understand the struggles in your life. If you don't know the truth about God, the truth about God will share, will show you the truth about yourself. So that's where Paul begins, the truth about God. Let's talk about the truth about God. He begins with the power of God. God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell within these temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Starts with the power of God. Where does He go back to? These guys aren't from the synagogue. So they don't have Old Testament concept about the existence of God. So where does it go? Creation. Where does your Bible start? Creation. How does it begin? With the creation of God? No. It says, in the beginning, God. Created. Bara. From nothing. The heavens and the earth. God made from nothing everything that is. That's where he goes. He goes to the truth about creation the lord made it now when he says that you got the stoics who think god's everywhere and in everything but if god created everything then god's not in what he created he's outside of what he created so it flies in the face of the stoics the epicureans who say god really doesn't have anything to do with us now he paul is laying out for him yes he he created not only did he create you he gives you life breath and all things Everything you have comes from Him. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul said, creation is really all you need. Why, why do you think the devil worked so hard to take that away? Don't it make sense? Creation. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Do you know the chair that you're sitting on is made up mostly of empty space? And whether or not it is hard or soft depends on how fast the molecules are moving within that object. That chair that you see that has foam if you open it up. I don't see no atoms. I don't see no molecules racing around. Does that mean they're not there? 
Oh no, we all know. Science tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt. How do we know that there are molecules and atoms? Some knucklehead split one, didn't he? What happened? Still the most amazing thing in history to me is that a man was so arrogant to say, I'm going to split this atom. Do you realize when they split the atom, the first atomic bomb, that there was no guarantee, theoretically or otherwise, that the chain reaction that began would stop. Chew on that for a second. They had no guarantee, theoretically or otherwise, that when they set off the bomb, that it wouldn't cause a chain reaction that would explode every molecule on earth. But they figured it probably would stop. And they set it off anyway. That is mankind. God said, you know, because you see my invisible attributes in creation. Yeah. He said, they, they're clearly seen. Now we, we fully understand it all, don't we? What does it show? It shows design. What does design say? Designer. If there's a designer, then there's a plan for my life. If there's a plan for my life, I have a purpose. But what's the world say? There's no purpose. Random occurrence, random events just happen. You're just an animal who has evolved to this state. And we wonder why when people act like animals, we're so shocked. They're just acting like the God they worship. Aren't they? So, he says they are without excuse. So he begins with creation. God who created everything. The second thing he says is he doesn't live in any of these temples. By the way, he doesn't live in Calvary Chapel Buell either. So you see somebody running and they knock something off a wall and it breaks. We can discipline them for breaking something, but the God didn't live in that mirror or that picture. And when the carpet wears out, we'll put new carpet in. Or we'll go to concrete that can't stain. Or if it does, we won't care. Because God doesn't live in the building. He lives in you. 1 Corinthians says, you, your body is the temple of God. Not the buildings. Paul looked around at all the temples all around him. He said, at the Areopagus, behind him is the Parthenon, in front of him is the Agora. Temples everywhere. He says, God's, God doesn't dwell in any of these temples you make with hands. And he doesn't need you to make them a house. He's okay. He's the Lord of the heaven and of the earth. But he also goes beyond that. Not only does God not live in the temples, not only is the God of creation created all things, He's the life giver. He's the giver of life. The Epicureans believed God was absent and had nothing to do with life. The Stoics believed He was in everything. He's offended them both already. He hasn't got very far in His message, and He's already offended them both. I don't know if they're aware they're offended yet, but they'll figure it out in a minute. It flies in the face of both of their philosophies. And then he goes on and he talks about the, the plan of God throughout history. Look at it. Verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. That means we are all related. We're all kin. Well, in science they call her primordial Eve. Isn't that interesting? Primordial Eve. That's the concept that we all come from one woman. Well, wait a minute. Didn't the Bible have a story like that? What was her name again? 
Eve. Oh, and what did science call her? Primordial Eve. I wonder why they did that. The Bible said, way back before, at the time, the Stoics and the Epicureans and every other nation believed that the gods they served created them and they developed as a people and here we are, separately. Everybody was created separately. But the Jews didn't believe that. They believed one God created us all from one blood. Every nation. And they, not only did they believe it, they could point back to when it happened. They could point back to the day when the nations divided, when God divided the tongues and people went in different directions and began to settle among those whom they could understand. And when they settled among those whom they could understand, the DNA pool got much smaller. When the DNA pool got much smaller, they developed different characteristics. Different skin color, different hair color, different eye shape. All because of the genetic pool when the language is divided. The Jews could point to it. They could say, here's where they settled, here's where they settled. These guys went to Europe, these guys went to Turkey, these guys went to Moscow. They could point it all out. It's in the table of the nations. Genesis chapter 10. Pretty amazing. You look through what the God's word has to say. He says, he made from one blood every nation, but he goes on past that. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What did he just say? This is what he said. You're not here on accident. You didn't accidentally happen. It wasn't just, whoo, hope sure was lucky that this guy showed up. Or Columbus bumped into that rock and, and we've discovered America. Otherwise, who knows what would have happened. God said, the Lord said through Paul, I have chosen all your times. When nations would come up, when nations would go down. I've even chosen the boundaries. Flies in the face of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Epicureans said, gods are around, but they don't care about us. But Paul says, no, he definitely cares. He's here, he's active in your life to bring you to this day, to this time, to this place. Just like God's brought you to this day, to this time, to this place for a purpose. What is the purpose? Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Listen, Paul is saying they weren't just living in Athens on accident, that Paul didn't just come to Athens on accident, that they're not all gathered together on accident, but that God has orchestrated this moment to bring them to this place so that Paul could share these truths, the great truths that God had laid on his heart with the people. And they would understand the truth about themselves as they understood the truth about God. That they were especially created by God and they were created for a relationship with Him. The purpose, seek God while He may be found. Seek Him. That you would seek Him. He's here. He's in our presence. That's the very next thing He goes to in verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said that we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. He says, man, He's here. He's in our midst. Not only is He in me, He's in you if you're a believer, and He's in the space between us. God is not everything, but He is everywhere. 
constantly moving, constantly calling. So when the scripture says, seek him, grope for him, it's, it's, a, it's a play on words of Paul saying he's right here in our midst and it's so easy to have a relationship with God. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's the rest? Shall be saved. Seems pretty complicated. And that's a simple message. God's presence is here. He's with us. He's around. But then he keeps going. Paul's sharing. He's moving. He's rolling. He's laid out the power of God. He's laid out the plan of God working in their history. He laid out the purpose of God that people would seek him. He's laid out the presence of God that he's right here among us. Then he lays out the challenge. He lays out the challenge. He says, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given us assurance to this all by raising him from the dead. He moves to two things. One, the need of repentance. Two, the coming judgment. The need of repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. To agree with the Lord. That's why some issues are issues within the church. Because people want to be able to have their sin and not change their mind. And if you are that person who wants to have his sin and not change his mind, then I don't know whether you are saved or not. The Bible requires repentance as a requirement. To turn from our sin to the Lord. But if I don't think what I'm doing is a sin, that's kind of a problem, right? Therein lies the issue. Therein lies the issue. Living together out of wedlock. It's always going to be a sin. It's never not going to be a sin. If you make the excuse that God's okay, He's going to overlook this, then you have just created God in your own image. You have built an idol for yourself. And that idol does not save. The idol who saves is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty said that sin, what does He require from us? To turn from it. To turn from it and turn to Him. To change my mind. Now, if I say, I am a grateful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who struggles with this sin, my mind's different. Do you understand the difference? It's one thing to say, God don't care about what I'm doing. God would say it's okay. He wants me to have fun too. Those are all lies. Those are Epicurean philosophies that are still around from the time of Paul. All lies. All lies intent on dissuading and turning your heart away from the true God. What is it that God wants from us? All men everywhere repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your mind. God's right, I'm wrong. If you don't like that, then you have a problem with a deeper issue. God is always right. And His ways aren't my ways. I acknowledge my sin before a holy God, and He says He will always forgive me. All the time. But, if I won't acknowledge my sin... That's different, isn't it? Why is he saying now, today is the day for repentance? Today is the day for, for salvation? Why is he calling for repentance? Because there is a judgment day 
appointed. Did you hear what that said? For he has appointed a day of judgment. That means there is no getting out of that appointment. God has said it. Every man will stand judgment. Believers and unbelievers. Believers stand judgment at what's called the mercy seat, the bema seat judgment, the scripture talks about, where the things we've done for Christ will be judged. Unbelievers will stand before judgment called the great white throne judgment, where the books will be opened and the Lamb's book of life will be opened, and if their name's not in the Lamb's book of life, they go into hell. Nobody's in hell today. Do you know that? Hell's not open for business yet. Were you aware? No hell. The devil's not in hell right now. The devil's not sending demons from hell. There is no hell until the false prophet and the Antichrist are put into the lake of fire. Nobody will be there. Everybody's busy running around the world doing crazy things. The dead are being held in a place called Sheol. The Bible calls it the grave. They're awaiting judgment. But judgment has not befalled them yet. It will. In Revelation chapter 20. That day will come. Judgment will come. Is appointed unto man once to die. And then what? Judgment is as sure as death. Now unless God sees fit. To call us all home before we die. It is one for one. Everybody dies. If everybody dies. Just as sure there is judgment. Judgment has been placed into the hands of the Son, the Scripture tells us. And He justified it or, or explained it to us all by raising Him from the dead. Look, it says in John five twenty one, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to have life in himself. And has, has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Revelation 20.11 gives us the fulfillment. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades, which is the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone's name not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Judgment comes for everyone. Nobody gets a pass. Either Jesus Christ bore your judgment on the cross or you bear it yourself. 
But the choice is given to every individual. So Paul is preaching and he's telling them about the power of God and God's ability to do all these things. That he's, he's there, he cares about them, he's in their presence. He says, you need to repent, there's a coming judgment. But as soon as he said the word that was guaranteed because Jesus' resurrection, they all stopped listening. He never got to the punchline. He never got to the moment of decision. He's preaching, he's teaching, and it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, I will hear about this later. Paul departed from among them. That's how it ended. Now, Paul was used to the mocking. Mocking always happened, right? Paul would teach, some people would mock. That's what they do. People mock sometimes. It was not so ready for the apathy. Ah, we'll hear about this later. Come talk to us again sometime. They never have an intention of making a decision or considering it again. And Paul never speaks in Athens again. That was it. He had three responses. Mocking. Apathy. And belief. Two names in the list of names for belief. Look at it. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So there were more than two. We don't know how many. But two are named. One of them, Dionysius, he is a member of the Athenian Senate. He becomes the first bishop of Athens. They turn the Parthenon into a church. And he is martyred in Greece. That's what happens to Dionysius. The other... Uh, Damaris, we don't know. We know she's a prominent woman because she's named, which means people knew who she was. Others who were not named. But Paul did something at Athens he didn't do anywhere else. He did something at Athens he didn't do anywhere else. Everywhere else, if they argued with him, what did Paul do? He argued. If they persecuted him, took him outside the city and stoned him, what did he do? He got up and came back in. But if they just didn't care, Paul just walked away. 18.1. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy. And he just so maybe despondent about the reception of the Athenians. He leaves. He don't wait no more. 18.1 says that he walks out. Says after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. He left. People in Corinth, they had one chance, one shot to hear the truth of, of God's word. The point of this section of scripture is, will you be moved to action? If you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, what's the message for you? Will you be moved to action? Will you share your faith? Will you be able to declare the power of God, the plan of God, the presence of God, the the, the ability to bring people into a relationship that they can know the God of the universe in their life. Will you be moved to action to do that? If you don't know the Lord, then the question is, which of the three groups are you? The mocker, the apathetic, or the believer? It's only three. Only one brings life. That's the believer. The one who puts his faith and trust 
in the Lord God Almighty. This morning we have opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper and we're going to prepare for that. We'll have the worship team come on up and as they come up and as we prepare for this opportunity, here's, here's what I'm looking for. I'm going to need some of the, the elders who are here or folks who are prayer counselors to be available. If you find yourself in the category of a person that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you really need to know Him before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul would say that if you partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking damnation upon yourself. The point is not that you're perfect. The point is you've got to have a relationship with Christ. So the relationship with Christ, the Lord's Supper means something. The, the bread is His body broken for me. By His stripes you will be healed. The, the cup is the blood shed for the remission of sin so my sins could be washed away. If I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ... The Bible says that it's the blood in the body of Christ is going to judge me. Get it? Or if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's the body and the blood of Christ that sets me free. So if you don't know Jesus, I'm not telling you don't partake of the Lord's Supper. I'm saying I got prayer counselors who will be up here, come up here, pray a prayer of salvation, take the Lord's Supper, sit down, and live forevermore. Amen. That's what I'm saying. I'm also saying that if you are a believer and you understand the call today to be, to be provoked to action, to move, to get up, to go, to be a part of what's happening, then I would encourage you, if that's something that the Lord has spoken on your heart, come on up and, and pray about that. Pray that the Lord will allow that fire to cool off. We don't need any lukewarmness, right? Just hot or cold? Let's catch fire. And then let's partake of the Lord's Supper because, man, when you understand what this is, it's so amazing that the God of the universe would come into time and, and wear flesh like I have. That He would walk in my shoes. That He would understand what it is to be hungry. That He would know what it is to be rejected and hated. That he would understand what it's like to try to share with somebody but nobody wants to listen. And that he would give himself, the God of the universe, give himself to the hands of those who would beat him and scourge him and nail him to the tree. But the whole point of it all is so that he could pave the way, so that I could, through him, grab a hold of the Lord. That I could have what God is reaching out to us with. That's the point. When you have a relationship with Christ, man, the blood means everything, don't it? The body and the blood of Christ is amazing. So we're going to enter into a time of worship. And as we do, and as the Lord moves you, we just invite you to come up. The Spirit moves you, come up, take the bread, take the cup partake of the Lord's Supper yourself as we worship, as we pray, and afterwards we'll, we'll close out together. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you this morning and we just ask that your Spirit would be with us, move in this place. Lord God Almighty, Father, we pray that you would do a perfect work. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, then Father, I pray that you would just compel them to speak with one of the prayer counselors, to, to pray. It's so simple. I'm a sinner.
forgive me of my sin. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. If there's those here today that need to be provoked to action, God, that they would commit themselves to be tools in the hands of the Master. And ultimately, Lord, as we come before your table, may we give honor to the body and the blood of Christ. May we give honor to what you've done for us. May we remember the beauty of your blood shed for me. In Jesus' name.
washes me Yes, the blood of Jesus washes me Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much, God, for the amazing grace that you bestow upon us, Lord, for your amazing truth. And Father, that you are here with us, that you move among us, Lord God, that you are mighty to save, able, Lord God, to bring us to the uttermost from the guttermost. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done how you reign in this place, Lord God, we ask. Father, that we would just have eyes to see the need around us, that we would respond being provoked to action, and that we would share our faith just as Paul did. Lord, that we would not be afraid for the same spirit that moves in him moves in us. Lord, we thank you for this time, a sweet time of worship, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.